Amen. We are in John chapter 4. We're going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage starting at about verse 5. Verse 5, John 4 and 5 says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, it was about midday. And there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. And then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence, or from what source then, hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, In that saidst thou truly, you've told me the truth. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither worship in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah, or Messiah, cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Amen. Bless the Lord. I'm going to teach a little, preach a little maybe this morning simply on the topic of worship. On the topic of worship. Bless the Lord. The discussion that takes place here by Jacob's well between Jesus and this unnamed Samaritan woman shares a common theme. If if you think of John chapter 7, Verse 37, you don't need to turn there, but many of you know that passage where it says that in the last day of the feast, the great day that Jesus stood up, he said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. For out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And we know that he spoke of the Holy Ghost, which was not yet given. And also, so we read that passage in John. And when you consider this passage in chapter 4, Jesus speaks to this woman 
about this water. This was different water to what she was used to talking about, but he was comparing the coming outpouring of the Holy Ghost to a living water, to something that could satisfy a thirst that was much more than just physical. He spoke to her of living water that he said, if you drink from this well, he said, you'll get thirsty again. He said, but the water that I have, he said, if you drink that, you'll never thirst again. And he knew, he said, well, rather, she didn't really understand, but she, she realized that he was talking about something more than ordinary H2O. And that living water that Jesus spoke about still satisfies thirst today. Amen. If you've been filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you know what I'm talking about. There is something that satisfies the soul when we are filled with the Spirit of the living God. Amen. And in verse 20 of John 4, the conversation shifts from different kinds of water and who has a bucket and who doesn't and how many husbands she's had. And the subject shifts to focus upon worship. And Jesus very bluntly, and we would perhaps say not politically correctly, but Jesus very bluntly tells this woman, she don't even know who you worship. You don't even know what you worship. And he said, we know who we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. And just as a side thought, anybody who says that Jesus did not have genuine human experience is going to have trouble with that verse. Jesus very clearly identified himself as a Jew. He was a Jew. Amen. But he said to this lady, he said, you don't know what you worship, but we do. That's pretty confronting. That's probably not how we'd advise you to approach somebody that you want to share the gospel with. But Jesus told this woman very plainly. But then he said, but the hour cometh and now is. So the hour cometh and now is. He said there is a change coming that is going to affect the way all of us worship. Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. He said, it's not about this mountain. It's not about Jerusalem. But he said, there's an hour coming when there is something that is going to happen. And he said, when that happens, there are going to be true worshipers that will worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, I've always read that statement, and you may have as well, and, underst- and understood that it means that if there are going to be true worshippers, then by default there must also be false worshippers. Uh, that's how I've always looked at it. After all, if something is true, then something else is false. That, that's not too deep a concept for us to understand. And I still think that that's true. There are true worshippers and there are false worshippers. But I think that the true worship that Jesus was speaking about here is directly connected to the hour that cometh and now is. It's not just about, well, this is a good worshiper and that's a bad worshiper. There is something that was going to change. And that change was going to introduce what Jesus referred to as true worship. Amen. Bless the Lord. In other words, during this hour that he spoke of, and we understand that it's not a literal 60 minutes, but he's talking about a particular time frame. Something was going to happen that was going to introduce a way of worship that was more genuine and more truthful than anything that they had previously experienced. Amen. And with that in mind as our platform, I want you to put that thought on pause if you can. And let's take a little bit of a look at the subject of worship.
We often use the words praise and worship together. We talk about praise and worship music. We talk about we come together, we praise and we worship. And that's not a bad thing. That, that's okay. Sometimes people like to try and define different kinds of songs as being praise and worship. And often what people will say is, well, the faster songs are praise songs, but the slower songs are worship songs. And I don't really think that's actually accurate. I think the content of a song is what probably defines it more clearly as being praise or worship or a combination of both. Amen. You see, praise, praise by definition is a response to something that is done. Praise is not reserved for God alone. We praise other people, and so we should. If somebody does a good job, you ought to praise them for it. The kids do something well, you need to praise them for it. The, those that are experts talk to us about things like positive reinforcement. Somebody does a good job, tell them, hey, you did a good job. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's praising somebody for what they've done. But worship, worship, on the other hand, belongs to God. It belongs to God, and it belongs to God alone. And mankind's worship of other things other than God have only caused sin, and devastation, and heartache, because worship is God's. And God is very sensitive about that fact. Worship is His, and He claims it as His. Amen. Bless the Lord. Now, worship in the Old Testament was usually associated with an action. There was something physical that took place when they worshipped. And the most common example we have is sacrifice. An animal was brought, or depending on the particular situation, something was brought physically and offered unto God as a sacrifice of worship. It was a very physical thing. To give you a couple of examples, when Abraham went up Mount Moriah to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis chapter 22, he described that as an act of worship. It was not just how he felt about something. It was not what was going on in his heart, although it was obviously connected to his heart. But it was a physical action. Amen. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read about a man whose name was Elkanah, who later on would become Samuel, the prophet Samuel's father. And the Bible says that Elkanah went up to the city once a year to worship. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that he only worshipped God once a year, but it is describing something that he did. It was a part of their, their law and their, their custom. On a particular time, he went up to this place of worship and offered sacrifice. It was physical. It was an action. Amen. So worship in the Old Testament is almost always directly connected with an action. Now in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, and I'll just read these verses. As part of their, their law and their commandments, the Lord said to Israel, He said, For thou shalt worship no other God. Little g. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is very sensitive about what you worship. Very sensitive about what I worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 19, in a follow-up of that same idea, he said, And it shall be that if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. So God's a little protective about worship he claims that as his and he has the right to claim that as his because he alone is god 
Amen. And when you look at the meaning in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew from the Old Testament for the word worship in English, it comes, the direct translation means to bow down or to prostrate oneself or to basically lie down with your face on the floor. That's what the word worship means. And there are times that you will feel that overwhelming need to worship God. Sometimes when the Spirit's moving and somebody will come to the altar and they will literally get on their face before the Lord. It is very much a physical demonstration. Amen. We see this throughout the Old Testament, this direct connection between worship and action. Now when we get into the New Testament, the Greek word that's translated as worship in the New Testament means reverence. Reverence is like a very strong respect. It talks to us about honor, devotion, even awe. When you're in awe of something, it's like, wow. You know, that's, that's just amazing when you're in awe of something. And there's an old word that we don't use so much today that is obeisance, which has, again, to do with reverence and honor and awe. And these words go, they include the idea of bowing down. They include the idea of a physical action, but they also go a little further and include the attitudes of our heart. When, you have, when there's reverence and when there's awe, that begins within. When you feel an awe for somebody, it's not, you, don't, you don't do an awe, you feel awe for somebody. It comes from within. And so there is a connection between what's happening in the heart and the demonstration. And just so that we don't just get stuck in Greek and Hebrew, just the English word worship is defined as a combination of all of these ideas. The expression of reverence, of adoration, of honor, of respect, of glory. Worship incorporates all of these things. So worship of God that is acceptable to God must have both the components of reverence from the heart and an expression of adoration. If we're talking about the worship that God desires, it must have both components to be acceptable in the sight of God. In the Old Testament, if they failed to offer sacrifice when they were expected to offer sacrifice, they broke the law of God. God took his law very seriously. If he said that on such and such a day, there's going to be this kind of sacrifice and you're going to worship me in this kind of fashion, and they did not do that, they broke the law of God. God expected that physical action of sacrifice. But it didn't stop there because there were times in Israel's history where they were offering their sacrifice, but it was just like, you know, just going through the motions. There wasn't any, they weren't really thinking about what they were doing or why they were doing it or who they were doing it for. It was just like, yep, another day, another sacrifice. Because in Isaiah 29 and 13, the Lord said, Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. So if they, if they sacrificed, but their heart wasn't in it, that displeased God as well. Jesus actually quoted that scripture from Isaiah in the New Testament when he was describing the spiritual condition of the scribes and Pharisees. He said, you guys look great. You've got all the right outfits on. You're doing all the right things at church, going through the motions, telling everybody what they should be doing. He said, but you've got all this action happening. He said, but your heart is a long way away. And the Lord was displeased with that. Amen. Bless the Lord. So although 
there are differences in the covenants between the two testaments. We understand that, or at least we do in various levels today. Worship has always been intended to include the inside and the outside of a person's life. The two cannot be separated. Now, I, would, I think most of us understand this, but it is definitely a true statement, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, that worship on the outside can be faked. And people are good at faking. Humanity are good at faking. And worship can be, can be faked and can be acted and can be very demonstrative and the heart can be far from God. But the reverse cannot be true. If there is an awe and a reverence and a desire to glorify God within us, it must come out. Amen. It cannot be contained within us. Bless the Lord. David wrote in the 29th Psalm, he said, Give unto the Lord the glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, to give you some historical context, he wrote that Psalm while or at the time that they brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. They brought that thing that represented God's presence and His power and His glory back to Jerusalem and they worshipped God. You can read about that in, in 1 Chronicles 16. That, that, psalm, that verse from that psalm is quoted there or that's where it's taken from. And so he said, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now holiness, holiness simply means that something is separated. It is set apart. When we talk about God's holiness, we talk about how pure and how righteous and how glorious He is. But when we talk about holiness in terms of our worship towards God, it is when we separate ourselves from sinful things, from sinful ways and sinful practices, because we are dedicated to God. We do not make ourselves holy, but by separation and drawing near to Him, His holiness, if you like, it's almost as if it overshadows us. Just like His righteousness is imparted to us. Without Him, we got none of that stuff. But holiness involves that separation. And holiness and worship in holiness is not compatible with sin. You cannot have sin in our lives and provide or produce acceptable worship unto God. I'm not saying you have to be perfect, but when you know that there are things that should not be there and you're not addressing them and you're choosing to hide them and ignore them, you can worship till your ears fall off. But God's not interested. Because we need to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you would, in the Old Testament. First Samuel chapter 15. Now Saul is the first king of Israel. Samuel the prophets anointed him to be the king. God sends a message to Saul, I think it was through Samuel, that he wanted him to do a particular job. There was a particular enemy that Israel had, that whether we like it or not, and we think it's socially or politically correct, God's instruction to Saul was to go and to wipe him out. Everything, every man, every woman, every child, every ox, every donkey, right down to the budgerigar. Everybody was to be wiped out. Nothing left. Now we look at that and think, wow, that wouldn't work too well in today's world, but this is God, so he gets to do what he wants to do. And so God, this, this instruction was given to Saul, and Saul goes out to battle against these people, but he only partially obeys the instructions. 
because he brings back the king alive and some of the leaders, the rulers, and he brings back some of the best animals and bits and pieces that he brought back. And Samuel comes to King Saul and he says, have you done what the Lord said to do? And Saul said, yep, I've done the job. And then the prophet said, well, how come I can hear animals? How come I can hear sheep and goats and oxen? And, and who are these people that you've brought back with you? And, and Saul tries to justify himself as well. The people, wanted, they, they put pressure on me. They wanted me to do this. And he tries to say, well, I brought back the animals to give as a sacrifice. He tries to disguise his disobedience as an intent to worship. Tries to hide what he's done wrong by saying, well, I want to do this for the Lord. And Samuel says in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, it says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken or to listen to carefully and take heed to is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, verse 23, is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. It's an incredibly strong couple of verses. It's also very tragic in that Saul did not obey the Lord. Amen. Saul, Samuel said to him, it is more important to God that you obey His Word than you sacrifice. It is more important that you listen to what God asks of you than you offer the fat of rams upon the brazen altar. He said those things matter more to God. And then he went on and he said, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's pretty strong. Any of you ever been guilty of maybe rebelling against the Lord just a little bit? <laughs> I know I have. Not once, not twice, too many times that I want to remember. But the scripture says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now, why, why does that, what's the significance of that? What, how, how does God see witchcraft? If you've been reading your bread Bibles, you would have seen in the last couple of days how God sees witchcraft. Exodus 22 and 18 simply says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Find a witch, kill her. That lets us know pretty clearly how God feels about witchcraft. But he's paralleling that same wickedness with rebellion. That's a little sobering. Amen. Bless the Lord. I don't mind if you don't get too excited about that, but it's worth chewing on for a little while. And he said, if you listen to the word of God and hear what God has to say, he said, that's better than offering the fat of rams. And he said, if you're stubborn, oh, I've been stubborn. He said, it's like being in iniquity, a vile sin. And it's like being an idolater. And we think, dear Lord, I'm not an idol worshiper. But if we're stubborn, and I don't think there's any one of us that's never been stubborn. And if we say we have, we're being stubborn and not admitting it right now. We've all been stubborn. Amen. What does this mean to us when we think about worship? It, if, if, if obedience is better than sacrifice then to obey the Word of God is an act of worship. To do what God says is an act of worship. That's 
where it begins with obedience. Jesus said what? He said, if you love me, he said, you'll do what you think is best. No, he said, if you love me, he said, keep my commandments. So obedience to God's word is an act of worship. There are too many people, and I don't say this to be harsh, but there are too many people in our world that declare themselves to be Christian and know not what the Word of God says and have ideas and concepts and things that make them feel good about what they think Jesus thinks they should do and what Jesus would have us to do that are not found in the book. But the Bible says that to obey is better than sacrifice. To do what the Word of God says. That's why we need to know what the Word of God says. Because when I listen to His voice, when His Word says to me, Son, you're a sinner. You need to repent of your sins. You need to be baptized in Jesus' name to have them washed away. You need to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When I listen to that, and when I obey that, I'm worshiping God. Amen. Too often we we think worship is between 10 and 10.30 on Sunday morning. And that is worship, but worship is much, much deeper than that. Worship starts when I say, what you will say, I will do. When you speak to me, I will listen. And I will hear your voice. To obey is better than sacrifice. Hallelujah. If we're stubborn and rebellious, Toward God, it will cause our worship to be rejected. Samuel, if you read on in that chapter, Saul says to Samuel, come and worship God with me. He was trying to save face in front of the people. All the people knew that he'd messed up. And he said to Samuel, come and worship with me. And Samuel said, I don't want a part of this. And then Saul begs him. He says, just, you know, give me honor in front of the people. You read it yourself. And so Samuel went and he I don't know whether they offered a sacrifice or what they did, but God was not in it because Saul was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's go back to John chapter 4. We've gone for a little walk. Let's go back there now. When Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour cometh and now is. What was the hour that was coming? And in fact, now well, now was. He was talking about the fact that he was manifest in flesh. And what was coming was his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when that hour comes, he said, there will be people that will worship God in spirit and in truth. Because when he went to Calvary, and he went into a borrowed tomb, and he rose on the morning of the third day, everything changed. Everything in the relationship between God and humanity changed and he said there's going to be a worship that's going to be possible when that happens that's not possible right now amen that's what jesus was talking about he said they will worship in spirit and in truth what does it mean to worship in spirit it's not primarily talking about the holy ghost although i believe that's a part of it and you have the holy ghost that will affect our worship but when he's talking about when we worship in spirit, he's talking about from within us, from our heart, from who we are. Not just what's going on visibly, but in the essence of who you are as a person. When you worship from your spirit, it's coming from within you. It's an expression of what's happening inside of us. It's not only what's happening inside of us, because when we drink that living water that Jesus spoke about, 
We have His Spirit within us and it stirs us to worship Him. When you come into the presence of the Lord and you're filled with the Holy Ghost, there is something inside of you that begins to stir. It begins to move. You can be driving down the road in your car. You put some praise and worship on in that car and in the middle of that vehicle, something inside of you begins to stir. That's that living water. It's not dead. It's alive. It's flowing. And when His Spirit stirs that, that which is within us, it begins to become agitated and activated and stirred within our hearts. And when what happens is if we are worshiping Him with our spirit, then I am taking my spirit and I'm submitting it to His spirit and I'm worshiping Him, my voice, my actions, and who I am. Amen. It's not just what happens. I love to praise and worship together. I'd much rather preach after we worship God than just to come in the door and preach. Because when we worship God together, His presence fills His place. His anointing descends. It stirs our hearts. It opens our hearts. And the Word of God can find a place to rest within us. Amen. But worship is so much more than that. The word holistic. Some of you have heard that word, I'm sure. It's a word that's become popular in the medical circles or in the medical world in recent years. The idea behind the word holistic is that everything about our lives and who we are is connected. And I'm not professionally qualified. I only have a very basic understanding. But in other words, how you feel about yourself is connected to your health. The way you see yourself and your emotions and, and many of the things we experience are connected to who we are physically. Mental health and physical health are not completely separate things. But the idea is that we are part of a whole. And there are no doubt people that have a lot of different opinions about this. I'm not suggesting that I am either supporting or not supporting the idea because, like I said, it's not my field. But that's, that's an idea that seems to have some merit. You know, I was at the hospital the other day, Charles Gardner Hospital, praying for a young lady. And while I was there, I got to go down to the new cancer center where Brother Thomas works and showed me around the new cancer center and did his best to explain what was going on in terms that I could understand, which is not very easy. But when you go into that cancer center, there are things that you expect to see. Uh, there's doctor's offices. There's, there's places where you can go and have different kinds of scans. There, there are treatment areas where people are having many of the various treatments for, for cancer, like chemotherapy and on and on and on. But then beyond that, there are some other areas that those of us that are ignorant like myself might not expect. There's an area set up for adolescents where there are it's sort of set up in a theme where they can go and just hang out between treatments and there are counsellors and there, there are things there just to help them with how they're feeling about what's going on. There's another area, another treatment area where, where you can go and there are different services that are provided to try and to lift people's spirits. You can, there, you can go and have a massage. If, if, if there are people that have lost their hair from having cancer treatment, there, there are experts there that can help you with looking at wigs or scarves or different options to help lift people's spirits because they, they are convinced that how people feel has a lot to do with how they heal. Now, again, the disclaimer is I'm not the expert. But when we talk about worshipping God in spirit, it is in a similar way something of a holistic approach to worship. In other words, it affects every area of our lives. It's not just here while the music's playing. 
We're clapping, we're singing, we're lifting our hands, we're dancing, we're shouting, we're worshipping the Lord. Sometimes there are tears, sometimes there's laughter, and all, all of those things are fantastic. And I wouldn't trade being in a worship service with apostolics for anything else in the world. But this is just a drop in the bucket of what our worship is all about. Amen. Because worship as Christians is also beyond these walls. What do we learn? We learned that obedience is better than sacrifice. Well, you see, this book tells me about how my attitude towards my job should be. It tells me about how my attitude towards my boss should be or, or the people that might be under me if I'm in authority. It talks to me about how my attitude should be towards government authorities. It talks to me about what I should do with my money. Oh, it went really quiet then. It talks to me about how my family should be talks to me about what I should prioritize in my life and what should come further down the track. It's all in the book. And if obedience is better than sacrifice, then what I'm doing Monday through Saturday in relation to what the book tells me is a part of my worship. Amen. I read a, I read a joke a friend of mine shared the other day. He said a pastor stood up in the front of his church and he said, the good news is we have enough money to pay off the church mortgage. The church thought that was fantastic. He said, the bad news is it's still in your wallets. <clears throat> Bless the Lord. Just, that's, that's free. That's not part of my message. But you see, when you really consider what the book says, every part of your life is addressed. Every area of who we are is covered in this book. For me, it teaches me how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a man of God, how to be a brother to my brothers in the Lord. It's all in the book. And if I want to be a worshiper, then obedience is better than sacrifice. Amen. Bless the Lord. So when I'm talking about worshiping Him in spirit, it's got to be beyond these walls. It can't just be what's happening. You know, if this is the only place you lift your hands to worship the Lord, you might want to ask yourself, why? I'm not suggesting you do it at work. Particularly not if you drive heavy machinery. That might be exciting. But when I'm praying at home, I'm in my office, the door's closed, I lift my hands to worship God because I don't lift them for other people to see me. I'm lifting them to worship God. He sees me. Amen. Worship has got to be beyond these walls. In fact, I'll go as far as to say if it's not beyond these walls and it's not really within them either. Bless the Lord. Talking about worship this morning. I don't want to be like those people that the Lord said, this people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are away. The Lord said that they would worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes we use that word truth and we narrow it down just to be talking about the oneness of God and all that stuff, and those things are truth. But when we worship the Lord, you see, up until Jesus came, all of their worship was types, shadows, substitutes, examples, symbols of what was to come. New Testament talks about how in the Old Testament they had the shadow, but in the New Testament they have the substance that casts the shadow. That's what the Old Testament was all about. But he said when the, when the time, the hour comes, the now is, 
and we're going to be able to worship God in truth. It's not symbolic anymore. It's not types. It's not shadows. It's the real thing. Amen. It is the real thing. Bless the Lord. I'm going to do something a little bit different just to keep you awake this morning. I need some helpers. You two tall fellas, Dale and Dane, come help me up here. I'm going to try to give you a visual image to help you out. I stole this from Sunday schools right all the way up here, guys, so don't break it. Okay, I need one of you at the front, just at the top of the step, and one over here. I want you to hold that up between you as best you can, like a big curtain. You guys are curtain rods, okay? Come back this way. All right, now I need Jonathan. I need you on the other side of the curtain. There is the, hopefully this will communicate something. Bless the Lord. Now, you can bring your arms down a little bit. I want your arms starting to hurt after a while. In the Old Testament, when a person would approach the Lord to worship the Lord, Christopher, I need you, please. Brother Gavin, I need you as well. Who else can I have? Maddie, come here, please. We've got the whole crew. You guys just stand over here, Maddie, over here, please. I'm trying to paint a picture for you, so just humor me for a moment. If I mess it up, remember everything I said before this. In the Old Testament, this is our Israelite. His name's not Gavin, it's Isaiah Finkelstein or something, a good, good Jewish name. This is our Israelite. He wants to offer sacrifice to, to the God of his fathers and to his God. So he finds himself a lamb. Bleat. <laughs> this is our lamb. And this man brings, bring your lamb. And he comes over to this guy who's the priest. And he prays and confesses his sin on this lamb and gives his lamb to the priest. Now, we're not going to act this out too literally here. Because then the priest will kill the lamb and offer the lamb upon this, the altar and go about the worship within the temple and the tabernacle, which is over here. Because you see, over here, inside the temple and tabernacle, there was what the Bible calls a veil. We would, for us to understand, it's more like a curtain. It was a giant curtain. Lots of pretty colors, not blue and yellow like this, but a giant curtain that separated what was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was where God dwelt, as far as they were concerned. So today, you're lucky you get to be God. You owe me one. So for the moment, though, he is invisible. Be invisible. Jonathan is the invisible God behind the veil. And so this man who wants to worship his God brings his lamb to the priest. Priest kills it. There's blood involved in the sacrifice. Presence of God is back there. This man goes home, and that's as close to God as he ever gets. And that happens year in and year out and year in and year out. And God is behind a curtain. And no Israelite's ever seen him. No man's ever seen his face. But this is what they know how to do. This is all they've got as far as worship is concerned. But Galatians 4 and 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. The hour cometh and now is. Now this is what happened. Just watch me closely here. You walk through this and wrap yourself in it as you walk. Wrap yourself in it. All right, you guys can go and sit down. Just hold it together for me. All right. Now, there's a point to this. Book of Hebrews tells us what about the veil? That it was like his flesh. God wrapped himself in a veil, walked the streets among his people. Poor old Israelites like this man over here were trying to work out who he was. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Jeremiah. 
Some say you're Elijah. Who are you really? People talked about him. The, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're all thinking, what's going on? And while he's walking, this worship's still going on. This Israelite's still bringing the lamb. He's bringing it to the, high, to the priest. And once a year, this high priest gets to go in and come out again. And they're not really sure who he is. And even his disciples, they're saying, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be okay. And he says, have I been so long time with you? And yet you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And all of this is going on. And Jesus is saying to this woman, in this state, still they don't really know who he is. And he's saying, the hour's coming. And now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And this mystery man that they can't work out, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, goes to an old rugged cross on a hill called Calvary. And the Bible says that when he gave up the ghost and he cried out and he said, it is finished, that the veil was torn and he was revealed. And suddenly that which was hidden was made visible again. Now how does that change my worship? Because when this man comes to worship his God, we don't need you anymore. Amen. And we don't need you anymore. Because this man is the high priest. He's also the lamb. And this man can come and meet God manifest in flesh. That's what it means when it says they will worship him in spirit and in truth. Hallelujah. It's not hidden anymore. It's not behind a veil. But he wrapped himself in that thing. And when he tore it, he said, here I am. Worship me. Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's why this morning, that's why there's something different about a worship service with apostolic Pentecostals. It's not because we're any better than anybody else. No, no, no. God forbid. It's not because we deserved grace or we deserved mercy or we deserved forgiveness. None of us deserve that. But when you understand who He is, when you understand what happened when He tore the veil and said, Here I am. You cannot help but to worship Him. You cannot help but to say, we sing that song, when I think about the Lord, how He saved me, how He raised me, how He filled me with the Holy Ghost. It makes me want to shout. And if you've got the Holy Ghost in you this morning, there should be something stirring that says, I've got to worship Him. I've got to worship Him in spirit from within me. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. We're not special. But we know who it is that we worship. When we say the name of Jesus, we know who that name represents. We sang that song earlier, I know who I am. I know who I am. And one point there it says, "He, you are mine and I am yours, you know. The Old Testament says, my beloved is mine and I am his. We don't say that he is ours in the sense that we own him. But he said that I will be your father and you shall be my children. Every child that has a father's place can say, that's my dad. He's mine. I don't say he's mine in the sense of he's a possession. But he's mine because he is my savior. He is my redeemer and I know who he is. Stand with me this morning if you would. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. The book of Colossians tells me that He is the image of the invisible God. 
He wrapped himself in that fleshly veil. He allowed them to tear it on the cross of Calvary. Why? Because the hour cometh and now is. And the true worshippers will worship him in spirit and in truth. Hallelujah. It's not just a type anymore. It's not just a shadow. There's no priests. There's no temple. There's no tabernacle. There's no ark of the covenant. It's all in Jesus. Hallelujah. When I want to worship him, I don't have to find a spotless lamb. He's that already. I don't have to bring that sacrifice to a priest because he's that already as well. Hallelujah. But I can come boldly, the Bible says, boldly into the throne of grace that I might find help in my time of need. Hallelujah.